Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. Hey, how's how's it going? We're back. We're back. Feels like we never left. I think we just did one of these, (laughs) didn't we? So the Supreme Court is about to kick off its 2021 term on the, what is it, the first Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Just kidding. First Monday in October, as all the great Supreme Court nerds know. That's when the term kicks off. The Supreme Court is about to kick off on the first Monday in October. And in its first sitting, the justices will hear United States versus Cernayoff, the case of the Boston Marathon bombing. I think something that's interesting about this case, though, Jordan, is that it's not really about what people think it's about, right? Right. We're going to get into this a bit with our guest, Willie J., who filed an amicus brief supporting the government. But... It's obviously a death penalty case, but the actual issues don't involve the imposition of capital punishment, like cruel and unusual punishment methods, the type of things we sometimes talk about with death penalty cases. It involves pretrial publicity and an evidentiary issue, which we'll get into more detail, but obviously something that we can't ignore that's lurking in the background here is that while this litigation was playing out, Attorney General Merrick Garland imposed an execution moratorium. Obviously, the thrust of the government's argument here is that they want to reimpose death sentences. What does the government do with death sentences? They use it to execute people. So on some level, there's a question of what exactly is going on here and how's that going to play into the argument. But I'll be curious to hear what Willie has to say about that. Willie Jay is co-chair of Goodwin's appellate litigation practice, a former assistant to the Solicitor General and clerk for Justice Scalia. He's argued 17 Supreme Court cases and briefed many more. We're happy to have him back on the show to talk about the upcoming Boston Marathon bomber case, where he filed an amicus brief for the National Fraternal Order of Police. Willie, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So the case presents two legal issues as well as political issues lurking in the background. We have DOJ trying to reinstate death sentences while there's an execution moratorium in place, and we can talk about how those intersect, but just to lay out what the actual questions presented are, there's one involving pretrial publicity and an evidentiary issue. Willie, your brief focuses on the pretrial publicity issue, challenging the appeals court's ruling that the trial court didn't do a good enough job screening jurors for their pretrial media consumption about the case. Tell us why you think that appeals court ruling is wrong. So the appeals court had said that the district court did not inquire deeply or I suppose broadly enough into pretrial publicity. They say that under their precedent uh, in a case dating back to a mobster prosecution from uh, about 50 years ago, Um, that the rule is that in high-profile cases, and high-profile cases only, the district court has a duty to ask questions uh, that the defense wants to ask the voir dire. In this case, the question would be, what do you remember hearing or reading about the case at the time? Uh, And the district judge in this case said that he wasn't going to ask every single juror in the uh, veneer that question that it might even be counterproductive because it would encourage people to think back to and focus on particular things that they'd heard at the time. Instead, one of the questions in the questionnaire was how much publicity uh, or coverage of the marathon bombings uh, do you remember 
seeing at the time uh, or something to that effect. Uh, none, a little, a moderate amount, a lot. Uh, and so all the jurors in the veneer asked that question. So the, the question here really is, did the judge make a reasonable decision about which questions to ask the prospective jurors, or was he required to ask the question that the defense counsel insisted upon? And is that enough of a reason to reverse the death sentence? And indeed, potentially the conviction, although in this case, it wound up not reversing the conviction because the defendant acknowledged that he was guilty uh, and therefore uh, any error would have been harmless. In the mobster case, uh, it would have been, it was grounds for throwing out the sentence anyway. And this is a rule that could apply in non-capital high-profile cases as well. So the basic thrust of our brief, like the government's brief, is that this is not a rule that's required by the Constitution. The Supreme Court has made that clear in a capital case from Virginia from about 30 years ago. And so the First Circuit should not have imposed it as an inflexible rule for every high-profile case uh, in those few states in the Northeastern United States uh, when it is not required by the Federal Death Penalty Act, it's not required by the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, and it's not required by the Constitution. So what is the issue ultimately that the court is trying to get out here? I mean, what what is it that we're trying to prevent in deciding, you know, which questions we should ask? So I think the issue really is who decides how to do the screening that everyone agrees is required, that, that every defendant is entitled to an impartial jury. Uh, and I think everyone also agrees that an impartial jury doesn't necessarily mean a jury where absolutely nobody has heard anything at all about a crime, which in the, in the case of a crime like the Marathon bombing would have been well nigh impossible even if you moved the trial to Alaska. The question really is, does the district court have discretion to figure out how best to go about that process and to rely on his or her role basically looking at the prospective jurors and weighing their responses to the written and oral questions that they ask uh, during voir dire? Um, or is the appeals court going to be more of a superintendent of that process and to say, no, you must, must, must ask questions like this about what do you remember? Because in a high profile case, if the defense wants it, you have to do it. And now we'll have the Supreme Court decide <laughs> on top of that at a layer. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you can't separate the question from the case in this case, right? Because not only is it not only is this question one that the First Circuit said it's only going to decide in high profile cases, this case is an exceptionally high profile case. And I think the government really made no bones about the fact that one reason that it was asking the Supreme Court to review uh, what might be a fairly case-specific holding in the case of the second question, which is about mitigating evidence, um, was the really uh, unparalleled importance of this prosecution. This is, this is a crime that shook uh, Boston literally and figuratively. Uh, it is a uh, it was a wrenching prosecution for the many victims, and the consequence of the First Circuit's decision would have been a new penalty phase trial about whether 
Tsarnaev should get the death penalty, at which the victims would again have had to come in and provide testimony about uh, the, the impact of his crime on them. Uh, so the, the government emphasized appropriately that this is not just a run-of-the-mill case. It was a very important case, and the First Circuit's error was sufficiently important that uh, the Supreme Court should review it, even though that meant taking up two questions and not one, and even though that meant uh, reviewing some fairly case-specific facts. And I think we've seen in the briefing that the parties have now filed that there's a lot of uh, heavy treatment of detailed evidence from the record. Along the lines of not being able to separate the case from the issues, at some level I'm wondering what we're doing here, because it's obviously an incredibly important case to everyone involved, but we have an execution moratorium. The obvious practical thrust of what the government wants here is to reinstate death sentences. And so if the government, at least this current iteration of the government, is not going to ultimately take advantage of what it wants to win, what are we doing here? Well, uh, let's let's take a step back. I mean, there was functionally an execution moratorium during the entire Obama administration as well. Um, nevertheless, during the Obama administration, Attorney General Holder decided that they were going to bring this capital prosecution, that they were going to seek the death sentence against this particular defendant and others. You know, and I think the Attorney General had uh, had standards for when he was going to approve death sentences. That's uh, his or her prerogative uh, as the chief law enforcement officer uh, at the Justice Department. But uh, it's just not the case that when there is no one being executed, that there are no capital prosecutions being brought. Um, it, now, it is true that if they don't want to execute this defendant, that the questions that they've presented don't really have a point because the voir dire question uh, the First Circuit held didn't affect the conviction, and the second question is about mitigating evidence, which only affects the penalty phase. So if the Justice Department wanted to say forthrightly, uh, we don't want to execute him ever, uh, we don't ever want to conduct a federal execution, including of Jokar Tarnayev, uh, then it might not have needed to pursue this petition. And I think that the Supreme Court, this, this the petition in this case was fully briefed uh, before Inauguration Day. But the court considered it several times before deciding whether to grant it. And as a result, it was well into the first couple months of the Biden administration before cert was granted. And I, and I think others, have read that as giving the Solicitor General's office, the government's chief Supreme Court lawyers, the opportunity to say, never mind, we are withdrawing this petition. They didn't do that. And the administration has continued to brief uh, the questions that the last administration presented, and you know the uh, other than the SG or acting SG him or herself, uh, you know these are career lawyers who have made these arguments, which are the same arguments that the government made in the in the appeals court. So um, the administration may not be interested in conducting any executions right now, but they haven't said that they are going to essentially functionally abolish the federal death penalty. They haven't granted clemency to people on federal death row. They haven't withdrawn this cert petition or said that they don't plan to execute Sarnayev. And quite frankly, unless they are absolutely 100% committed to there never being a federal death penalty, this would be, uh, it'd be very easy to imagine this being the very last case 
uh, in which you would uh, grant clemency or withdraw a petition. This is really the, the worst of the worst. Yeah, I thought it was, um, you know, it seemed like the decision below took pains to be, I think they said, you know, crystal clear that, you know, this is a situation, you know, we're looking at the specific punishment here, but it's not as if Tsarnaev is going to go free because of anything that the courts decide here. There's many life sentences stacked on top of each other that are not affected by this decision. No, no, that's right. But I think that... um, Certainly, both the prosecution and the defense see a difference between a death sentence and a life sentence in this case, because the defendant, I think, would stipulate to the life without parole sentence that that is the alternative when you are on trial for a capital crime. Willie, I'm wondering, what do we know about any of the justices' leanings on the actual questions presented? We know that there's obviously a stark divide on capital punishment in general, but Heading into the argument, is there anything that we should be keeping in mind, or is it somewhat to be determined what the current Supreme Court thinks about the issues here? Uh, I think it really is yet to be determined, partly because of some new justices, uh, partly because of the nature of the issues. And so, just to just to say again, right? Not neither of these questions is. Uh, well, cer- certainly the voir dire question is not specific to capital prosecutions generally. Uh, and then the uh, question about mitigating evidence, uh, that is specific to federal death penalty cases, you might say, but it really is quite specific to, to this case. But it, that question goes to a holding that the Supreme Court has reaffirmed a number of times uh, that a defendant in a capital case has an absolute right to present uh, almost without limit, whatever mitigating evidence he wants. Mitigating evidence meaning reasons to grant mercy and not not impose the capital sentence, uh, whereas the government is presenting aggravating evidence, you know, reasons why this person is worse than the normal criminal and deserves a death sentence. Um, And uh, the Supreme Court has a series of cases about how neither the law nor the jury instructions uh, can restrict the jury from considering relevant evidence in mitigation, even if, for example, it might ordinarily be barred by the hearsay rules or other, other things like that. Well, in this case, the judge decided to keep out evidence that Sarnaev's older brother uh, and co-conspirator in the marathon bombings, uh, who was killed during the, uh, dur- during the process of escaping uh, when Sarnaev ran him over with a car, um, um, that the older brother was the leader and the instigator and in particular had uh, committed another brutal robbery murder not with his younger brother in Waltham and so the briefs call this the Waltham evidence I feel sorry for Waltham um, but Starnaev was able to argue that he was dominated by his older brother he was able to argue that the older brother was the planner and the leader um, but he wasn't able to bring in evidence of uh, that the older brother had committed this other crime. And the re- one reason for that is that the evidence that it was the older brother was a statement by uh, the person who allegedly had carried out that robbery and homicide with the other Sarnayev brother. Uh, and in the course of giving his statement, he attacked the, the law enforcement uh, and was killed. Uh, so... He's not around to testify to it, but he was in the process of implicating Tamerlan Tsarnaev, the older brother. So uh, the judge decided that there's really no way to decide 
what happened because everyone who was there is dead uh, and excluded it from the trial for that reason. And Tsarnaev uh, has actually made this the lead argument in the Supreme Court. It was not the lead argument in the government cert petition. It was not the lead argument in the Court of Appeals. Uh, but they've kind of flipped the order in their brief uh, and have argued that this is the main problem with the affirmance of the death sentence, that he wasn't able to argue about this Waltham crime uh, and thereby uh, point the finger at his older brother more um, more sharply. And the government says, that's not really what you were deprived of the opportunity to do. You were able to um, bring in a lot of evidence about how the older brother is the more culpable one. Um, and it would have been harmless in any event. It wouldn't have affected what the jury did. The reason that, so that, this is kind of a long wind up, but one reason that I, I, I went to this question first is that Justice Scalia, when he was on the court, um, strongly disagreed with the idea that there was an absolute right to present whatever mitigating evidence you want in a capital case uh, and dissented time and again from decisions taking that uh, taking that view. The court hasn't had that many capital cases, uh, at least presenting kind of the, the ins and outs of uh, aggravating and mitigating evidence uh, in recent years. And so it's it will be interesting to see whether Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett have the same view of mitigating evidence uh, as Justice Scalia. Now, bear in mind that here there's a statute that regulates uh, mitigating evidence and, and gives the defendant the right to present mitigating evidence uh, and the jury the right to consider it. Uh, but if the backdrop is that, there, that some of the justices are skeptical of the underlying Eighth Amendment rule, that might affect how they see this question. At the end of the day, though, Again, going back to this separating the case from the issue, I'm wondering if we can look at the fact of a grant here, which, yes, in theory on its face doesn't say anything about the merits. The fact that they waited, they gave Biden the opportunity to change his mind and said, okay, we're taking this. How is just even the fact of a grant here on such fact-specific issues not an indication that the death sentences are going to be reinstated by the Supreme Court here, one way or the other? Well, I mean... I think that it probably does show that at least four of the nine justices who voted on this cert petition are skeptical of what the First Circuit did in this case. While there are two questions, there would probably be no point in granting on one question unless there is at least a reasonable possibility of reversing on the second question as well. So, Jordan, I think your, your point is, is right that this is the kind of case where a grant probably suggests some skepticism about uh, what the lower court did, but the briefing is very thorough. It's very well done on both sides. Uh, the emphasis on Tsarnaev's side has certainly changed, uh, or it's an effort to reframe the, the questions from the way the government presented them. And, you know, the justices, by the time of argument, will have delved into it much more deeply than they did at the search stage, as, as is always the case. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is sort of that Justice Breyer in the last you know, decade has uh, kind of gone from being uncomfortable with the federal death penalty, oh, sorry, with the death penalty uh, more generally, uh, to uh, holding that he thinks that uh, it likely is unconstitutional. Uh, now, his, his reasons for that uh, don't match up very neatly with this case, right? There, there's, there's no doubt about this defendant's guilt. There is no doubt about uh, the fairness of the proceedings in this ca in this case, you know, in, in in that he had excellent legal counsel and access to all kinds of resources to uh, uh, to wage his defense. 
I don't think Justice Breyer is going to change his mind and say, well, I'll make an exception for this guy. Um, but it will be interesting to see what the more death penalty skeptical members of the court uh, make of uh, make of this. And then Justice Barrett, uh, one of the things that got attention during her confirmation process uh, was her view on capital punishment, which she had written a piece uh, uh, with another author uh, a long time ago in which she suggested that uh, a uh, judge with a religious objection to the death penalty uh, might need to recuse herself from imposing the death penalty in other words, being the trial judge who imposes sentence, um, but that the role of an appellate judge in considering a death sentence is simply to decide whether the sentence was imposed consistently with the Constitution or laws. And I, this came up a little bit during the flurry of executions toward the tail end of the Trump administration. Some people asked, you know, if Justice Barrett is has religious objections to the death penalty, why is she voting in this way? And I think that the distinction that she drew between an appellate judge and the judge who actually is opposing the death sentence is, is, is the answer to that question, and I think probably will be the, will be the reason uh, why her approach here is not going to be sort of a uniquely, an approach unique to a Catholic jurist or a jurist who objects to the death penalty on religious grounds. Well, I thought it was really interesting and convenient for Justice Barrett that she was never a trial court judge. And so that's where her, you know, objection lies. But then she can make this fine distinction between, you know, an appellate court and a trial court judge. Well, speaking of religion at execution, we'll be talking about this in greater depth with another case. But the one case where the court actually granted cert off of the shadow docket was in a religion at execution spiritual advisor issue so we'll be talking about that in the ramirez case which will be argued in november so something else to keep in mind but until then we got some cases to hear in october uh jordan um i forgot how this goes what are we gonna do next week we're gonna do a sneak peek sneak peek first week of the term that's right um i'm excited to get back into the courtroom that's right we got news that the court's going to be having in-person arguments but just with limited attendance including the supreme court hard pass holders which includes our very own kimberly here so we'll have to hear from her about what it's like inside the court on a future episode yeah i'm really hoping that i get to take a different view of the courtroom besides the uh press box. But until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is, is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Breyer watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time, we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224ths of it, citing the Passchendaele battle. It's one of the largest battles of World War I. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion 
on corporate law? You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.